This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. 2023 was the hottest year in recorded history, both in terms of air temperatures and ocean temperatures, and it was the eighth record-breaking year in a row. And while climate scientists have been telling us for decades that as temperatures increase, we're going to see disruptions in our weather patterns someday in the future, it's starting to feel like that future is already upon us, with examples like Hurricane Otis, which intensified from a tropical storm to strong Category 5 hurricane in less than 24 hours last October in hit Acapulco. Hurricane Hillary last August, which also rapidly intensified and maintained enough strength to cross California as a tropical storm, breaking tropical rainfall records in several states and causing extreme flooding in one of the driest places on Earth. And of course, 2022's Hurricane Ian, which devastated southwest Florida and caused flooding and damage to much of the Florida Peninsula. The list goes on all around the world. On today's show, we're previewing the 2024 Southwest Florida Climate Summit hosted by the Coastal and Heartland National Estuary Partnership, which gathers experts to present the latest climate science pertaining to our region and methods for building resiliency in our communities. It's next Wednesday and Thursday, February 28th and 29th at the Charlotte Harbor Event and Conference Center in Punta Gorda. The summit is free and open to anyone, but pre-registration is required. WGCU Public Media is one of the summit sponsors, by the way. I spoke last week with the summit's organizer and two of its presenters. Let's hear that now. Jennifer Hecker is executive director of the Coastal and Heartland National Estuary Partnership. Jennifer, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Dr. Carolina Moran is chief resiliency officer for the South Florida Water Management District. Dr. Moran, thank you so much for coming to us today and uh, thanks for your time. Thank you. And Jennifer Cotto-Salisbury is Executive Director of the Central Florida Regional Planning Council. Jennifer, thanks for being here as well. Thank you. Jennifer, uh, let's start with you. Uh, Jennifer Hecker, that is. I'll try to be clear on which Jennifer we're talking to today. Jennifer Hecker, last year I began this conversation in advance of this summit by asking, safe to assume we're going to be talking about Hurricane Ian a lot during the summit. Uh, First question, how much is Ian still on everybody's mind through the context of this summit? I think it's still very much on our minds. And of course, this past year, we had Hurricane Idalia, which even though it hit hundreds of miles away, did push a lot of storm surge up on our coastline. So I think people are realizing that these storms, whether they hit directly like Hurricane Ian, which was devastating to many of our communities, or even hundreds of miles away, that we're going to be seeing likely impacts and we need to be better prepared. When we talked to you last year, it was about six months out from Ian, so the dust was still sort of settling when it came to understanding what happened through the lens of data and studies and stuff like that. How much better picture do we have at this point out, you know, a year and a half out, as far as, you know, what Ian caused and, you know, how our systems handled it and advice for systems heading in the future? that makes sense? We learned a lot of lessons from Ian, uh, things that we wouldn't have expected. For instance, you put homes up on stilts, you would expect those to be safe from floodwaters. But in fact, because they weren't built up underneath with land in some areas, the water found its way to that as a lowest point and rushed underneath and took out the footers underneath those stilts. We saw beach walkovers where the dune vegetation had been shaded out by the material of the of the beach walkover and the pathway became a river 
that essentially incised whole new uh, cuts along our shorelines. So there's just a lot of things we didn't expect that we learned through experience in Ian, and we're coming back with that information at this year's Climate Summit, where we have a Hurricane Ian Informing Resiliency Efforts panel. You've been doing the summit for a while now. Is this fifth year? Mm-hmm. Fourth. Mm-hmm. Fourth year. Um, how, if at all, has the sort of shape and tone of these summits changed over that time? Um, do you, can you characterize how this year's might be sort of different than the first year? Well, even four years ago, I think a lot of us were expecting that these types of changes would take effect you know, slowly, and they'd be kind of out in the future. A lot of our models started looking at uh, changes in 2030. And here we are in 2024, and we're knee deep in climate changes already underway, uh, not just in Florida, but globally. 2023 was a remarkable year, where we hit the warmest year on record around the, the globe. And we also had the warmest ocean temperatures which followed on eight previous years where we broke ocean temperature records. So we know that now we are very much seeing the impacts of climate changes, both to our atmosphere and our oceans, that then create more dangerous and severe storms and extreme rainfall events. And those have been manifested around the world. We saw in Libya, where they got nine months of rain in a day. We saw Acapulco with the most rapidly intensifying hurricane uh, that went from a predicted tropical storm all the way to a Cat 5 in under a day. And then even locally, we've had Fort Lauderdale, where it got 25 and a half inches of rain in less than 12 hours. Uh, So we know that these types of events are now something that we need to understand are potentially the new norm, and we need to plan to be prepared for them. Are the things that you described uh, making it uh, easier to have people come join you at this summit from various agencies and organizations because the issues seem so much more apparent? I definitely think that we are seeing historic investments at the federal and state level in addressing resiliency. So that's very encouraging. Uh, We still have a somewhat tight-knit group of people who are working on resiliency, but that is broadening and expanding at this point due to this extra funding. But I think we want to see the general public get more engaged, and we really invite everyone. It's a free public event on February 28th and 29th, and we are opening it up and asking the public to consider taking time out to join us to be part of this conversation and this movement to enhance resiliency in our region. And they can do that just by going on our website, chnep.org, and registering. And they can just come and sort of be a fly on the wall. They don't have to do anything but show up and listen and choose which things they want to attend. Exactly. And we have audience Q&A. Uh, all throughout. So we do want to make it interactive and make sure that they're part of the conversation. Uh, One of the panel discussions is being moderated by the Central Florida Regional Planning Council uh, with elected leaders from inland counties uh, talking about what's called Heartland Regional Resiliency Coalition efforts. Um, So I think now's a good time to bring in Jennifer Cotto Salisbury. Uh, Jennifer, for starters, tell us a bit about yourself and the work that you do um, and the Central Florida Regional Planning Council. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to be here today. So the Central Florida Regional Planning Council is one of 10 regional planning councils in Florida. Uh, We are a government agency and we actually are coming up on our 50th anniversary. We were created in 1974 
by the five counties that we serve, and that includes DeSoto, Hardy, Highlands, Okeechobee, and Polk counties. We really work in partnership with our communities as we look at the vision of a more resilient future. And the Heartland uh, Regional Coalition, the Central Florida Regional Planning Council, uh, really is the foundation and the coordinator of that coalition, which also includes the counties of Glades and Hendry, um, just due to our interrelated uh, economies, our resources, and uh, resources of regional significance. Um, but back in 2021, uh, we formed the Heartland Regional Resiliency Coalition, and the foundation of that was Heartland 2060, which was really a grassroots effort that kicked off in 2006, as the seven counties really looked at a path forward for a more resilient region. Even though we are inland, we are the only completely inland regional planning council in Florida, uh, we also face natural disasters as well. We had significant impacts from EN and kind of looking back even to 2004 with Charlie, a lot of those paths come right through the center of the state, which is many, many of our counties. Yeah, Ian got us all for sure. Um, you're going to be uh, part of the panel discussion with, alongside uh, Deputy Mayor Keith Keene from uh, the city of Arcadia, Mayor Nathaniel Birdsong from the city of Winter Haven, and Commissioner Scott Kerouac from Highlands County. Um, can you just give us an idea of what that panel will cover and kind of focus on? Yes, yes. We'll actually be giving an overview of the formation of the Heartland Regional Resiliency Coalition and then the initiatives that have been taken so far and experiences that each of the the members has had in their jurisdiction but also discussing that importance of that regional conversation uh, as we know when we have flooding water doesn't stop at a county line or a city line from a regional perspective, looking at many aspects of resiliency at that, that larger level is really critical to uh, the future for resiliency, looking at not only flooding, but our economies, agriculture, uh, other industries. So our panel will be discussing all of those facets. Your bio says that you have more than 25 years of experience in urban planning. And what I want to know is from your perspective, how has that world of urban planning changed in terms of recognizing the need for resiliency from like climate related issues and just resiliency in general? Is there a difference between now and 25 years ago? Well, I think as planners, we have maybe not called out resiliency specifically, but we have always worked towards a more resilient future. As we look at improving building codes, as we look at uh, building standards, looking at you know stormwater, stormwater ponds, making sure that there's enough capacity for the next event. But I think we're seeing more extreme events just in an afternoon thunderstorm, and we're seeing infrastructure that's aging that may not be able to support uh, definitely not the category four and five hurricanes, but sometimes just that rainfall that we'll see in an afternoon, um, not only that aging infrastructure, but 
designing to greater capacities. Is it possible to sort of retrofit or redesign and or upgrade stuff that moves water around? I, I'm not using a technical term there, but that's the best I could do on short notice. Um, you know, it's one thing to build a new community and, and design it for what we deal with now, but it's another thing to have a community that's been there for decades dealing with this new reality. So the question is, is you know, how do you upgrade is the, if it's possible? And that is that is really the question of the day, um, and what is really being evaluated uh, through the the coalition itself. Looking at where do we go from here to right retrofit and address those um, new communities, or for example, some of them are being built higher than the older communities, so that has an impact on the older communities coming in and the way that water flows. Uh, just as one example. So that is some of what we are looking at. The uh, Babcock Ranch community in uh, Inland Lee and part of Charlotte County sort of did uh, famously well during Hurricane Ian and I talked to the developer behind it, Sid Kitson, on the show and he explained how they really sort of sat down at the beginning and looked at the topography of the land and thought about it from a big picture in terms of where water could be moved or would want to move, I guess you can say. Um, and so they've designed it in hopes of being able to manage water most effectively. Is that a perspective that's relatively new in, in terms of city planning and urban design, or is that something that's been around for a long time? Well, I will say that uh, Babcock Ranch is definitely a model for communities as we go forward, but it's also in a more isolated environment you know, kind of where it's it's located. But it is an approach that I think has been a goal, but more so now. I'd like to take a moment to reintroduce my guests. Uh, Jennifer Cotto Salisbury is executive director of the Central Florida Regional Planning Council. Jennifer Hecker is executive director of the Coastal and Heartland National Estuary Program. And Dr. Carolina Moran is chief resiliency officer for the South Florida Water Management District. We're getting a bit of a preview of the upcoming 2024 Southwest Florida Climate Summit presented by the CHNEP. It gathers experts together to present the latest climate science pertaining to this region and methods for building resiliency in communities. The summit's next Wednesday and Thursday, February 28th and 29th at the Charlotte Harbor event and Conference Center in Punta Gorda. It is free and open to anyone, but pre-registration is required. WGCU is one of the summit sponsors, by the way. If you'd like to engage with the show about today's topic, just find us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and X. Uh, Dr. Carolina Moran, let's bring you in now. Tell us about yourself and your background and the work you do as Chief of District Resiliency with the South Florida Water Management District. Sure, thank you. So yeah, I, I've joined the district about four years ago. And the agency has been working on those topics for quite some time now. And basically the focus of our work is to understand how we can move water around under those evolving conditions in a way that we can continue to provide essential ecological functions and protect our communities from flooding. Also part of this equation is the water supply that is also in our mission and we, of course, need to ensure that we will continue to have safe and um, safeguarding those um, water uh, supply sources to the communities. So 
it's a big mission when you think about those um, changing conditions, specifically climate changing conditions, because what we have seen so far in terms of impacts, observe impacts from those um, from sea level rise and other climate impacts is really, I, I would guess 90% of those impacts are related to water resources. So we are trying to really capture and understand better how those conditions are going to be taken into account as we continue to operate water management, as we continue to develop actions to restore ecosystem, as we continue to provide flood protection to the communities and also ensuring water supply. So um, my background is, is in, I also have an urban planning <laughs> uh, degree in, in civil engineering um, with a focus on water resources. And I've been working here in, in Florida for um, almost uh, eight years now. I was in Broward County before as well, uh, doing uh, some of the water resources planning on a more local uh, county perspective. So one of the challenges here, especially I'm going to bring a little bit to South Florida, is really the low-lying gravity uh, dependent system that we have today to move water around and, and, and really the no room, not too much flexibility in the system today to really continue to achieve those goals to perform our mission as those conditions might be exacerbated. So we have been seeing limitations in the way that we can um, perform water management as a result of sea level rise already. And we are looking at some infrastructure investments that are needed, again, to continue to perform our mission. Um, yeah, in a big picture, I would say that's that's the main role. That's the main goal of what we are trying to do that. And of course, ensuring that all the work we do is based on, on solid science. Uh, so we invest a lot in, in really advancing some research on, on those observed conditions, changing trends, any pattern that we are seeing, bringing that to proper hydrologic modeling tools that can really capture uh, the way water is moving and, and impacts on, on how we can perform. And then of course, identifying those priority infrastructure investments. How did the uh, the water control systems in the South Florida Water Management District do, do during Ian, generally speaking? Um, and are there any lessons that were learned or you know, ways that you better understand what a big storm that dumps a lot of water like Ian might mean? Yes. So first and foremost, you said big event, larger than any system was designed for. We look at that event uh, with a very 200 year recurrence. That means like we were not designing for such a, a big event from the very beginning. So yes, we had challenges in really keeping water levels uh, below what we call safe development lines. So really trying to bring water levels down after this, this massive event. And as the runoff goes down in this basin. So we had uh, to bring um, pumps, large temporary pumps to really help us on moving this water down the system. And uh, again, reducing those, those water levels that we were seeing throughout this upper Kissimmee Basin region. So the, 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 the largest impact from the rain, and I would say the longest impact that we observed from Ian was really a result of this massive rainfall and really the timing to get this, this runoff down the system. So some of the lessons learned is, yes, we can still bring more capacity to the system. We are looking at some of 
key points in our infrastructure that we know can help us in increasing conveyance, storing more water. But I love the piece of storage because one lesson learned that we had too and a quick exercise we did was related to the restoration of the Kissimmee River. We did see a lot of more room for the water in the floodplain as a result of the already restoration um, efforts that were achieved in this basin, in this region. So it could have been much worse if we did not have room to accommodate, to store some of the water. This is a big part of the solution, really finding room for the water where we can, how we can, through big, small distributed storage. Um, but yes, we are working on that and, and we are going to continue to look at options on how we can accelerate recovery or even prevent some of the damages to occur as we see those events um, happening in our region. And as you men mentioned briefly, but I'm sure you're super well aware, you know, a big part of your challenge is not only moving water effectively, storing water when necessary, but then you have to balance all of the um, ecological concerns as well, which means you can't necessarily do things in the way that makes, the, makes it easiest. You have to do it in a way that balances all those things. Yes, water resources management is a, is a balancing exercise. And uh, we joke sometimes that when everybody is a little unhappy is when we reach that balance because there is no way that everybody can get everything they want when we are thinking about those, how we share and how we can operate a, a water management system of such magnitude. So the ecological piece is a huge piece. We take it very strongly as we manage the system. We have significant lessons learned from um, a, a, an original conceptual system that was prioritizing some of the, the flood and, and water supply without taking into account the, the whole environmental piece. Uh, we have the largest program nationwide in terms of ecosystem restoration and preserving ecological functions going on right now, implementing a series of efforts. And uh, yes, that's a big piece of the equation. That's something that we are taking into account 24-7 when we are recovering and when we are addressing those events. And again, finding the balance is not an easy task. And of course, at different times and different moments, we're going to see impacts um, that are going to be um, occurring through all the, the goals that we have here. And, and finding the balance is, is not an easy task, but it's something that we, we have a lot of tools and we have a system in place and people that really can be in the room looking at all those different aspects and driving um, the, the, the response in a way that would minimize um, impacts in general. Uh, Jennifer, we're coming up to the end of the show, but I just want to ask, um, are we pivoting into a dealing with the reality of climate change and issues that it causes and looking at ways to mitigate those impacts versus, I mean, I know we still want to do everything we can to try to prevent the long arc of it happening, but now, like you've described earlier, as we see these things happening around the world that seem to be evidence, are we more focused now on mitigation than prevention? I think Is that a we, fair question? I think we need to do both. Uh, anything we can do to slow these changes, um, every little bit makes a difference. And we do need mm -hmm. to slow it because things cannot adapt quickly. Even humans cannot adapt quickly. So we need to uh, 
do everything we can to slow these changes down and try to reduce the worst, uh, avert the worst outcomes, reduce these impacts. But on the other hand, I think one of the things that I just heard that really sticks out to me is there's so many opportunities right now to make a, a new, more sustainable, resilient future. And we have unprecedented efforts going on both at the state level with the Florida Wildlife Corridor and at the federal level with the new Everglades to Gulf Coast Conservation Area. Area where we are looking at, we need to save these natural lands. When you heard about Babcock, the fact that the areas around it are preserved, and that helped to also provide protection to that community. And then you hear about the Kissimmee Basin restoration. Uh, those emphasize that natural areas are critical to protecting our human uh, communities and environment. So we need a balance in the state. And as we're rapidly developing, we have very few years left to try to secure the conservation areas and uh, working landscapes that we need to keep undeveloped to recharge our aquifers, to provide natural water quality and stormwater attenuation and treatment. And so there's there's some really important opportunities right in front of us right at this moment uh, with all of this funding, with these initiatives at the state and federal level. And that's why we need the public to jump in and really help us to advance these. This is our moment. If we don't make the right choices right now, then generations to come will not have those choices to be able to provide the services that they need for themselves, um, the water quality, the water supply, uh, the flood protection, all the things we've talked about. So um, very much appreciate uh, the work of these different agencies coming together that are represented, um, as well as many others that are going to be partaking in the summit. And we ask the public to join us on February 28th and 29th. And you just go to chnep.org to find information about how you can get your free registration to attend. All right. Jennifer Hecker is Executive Director of the Coastal and Heartland National Estuary Partnership. Jennifer, thank you for your time. It's good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you. Dr. Carolina Moran is Chief Resiliency Officer for the South Florida Water Management District. Dr. Moran, thanks to you. Thank you. And Jennifer Cotto Salisbury is Executive Director of the Central Florida Regional Planning Council. Jennifer, thanks to you as well. Thank you. You can find links to more information about the summit and how to register on our website, wgcu.org gcl. WGCU Public Media is one of the summit sponsors this year. If you missed any of the show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website or wherever you find podcasts. Our show today was produced and directed by yours truly. Our social media coordinator is Bianca Massoni. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM NPR for Southwest Florida.